This is Three Interesting Things. Hello and welcome to Three Interesting Things, a weekly podcast where we discuss the three most interesting things on the internet this week as determined by you. I am your host, Don Grant. Joining me today in the co-host chair, freelance filmmaker and co-producer of Superhuman Public Radio, all the way from Washington, D.C., or Arlington, really, but it's all kind of the same thing. John Dorsey, how you doing, John? I'm doing good. You have no idea how much people who live in Arlington are going to appreciate you adding that tag. Anytime you tell somebody like, I'm from D.C., and then somebody from D.C. finds out you're from Arlington, they're like, no, you're not. Shut your mouth. I, I have a friend from Newton, Massachusetts, and, and she's always sort of saying, no, it's not Boston. It's Newton. It's where the fig Newton comes from. So some people huh. are actually are, are quite happy to be associated with the large metropolis, which is right aside them. And some people are not so happy about that. That's very true. Uh, how are uh, how are your COVID numbers there right now? Uh, DC is all right. Uh, I have a pregnant wife at home, so I don't go anywhere. Oh, that's right. You and you are actually she's due any minute, correct? She is due in 20 days. Oh, so if we all of a sudden have to cut this thing short, we know. Yeah, yeah. So you guys are pretty close to inauguration there. Is what have you been in the city when inauguration happens? What, like what's it like? If if you're from the area, it's kind of weird cuz DC empties out. They close down streets. So you can obviously go downtown, see the inauguration, the festivities, but part of the joy, if that's the right word, is walking around just completely shut down streets of DC and there will be no one on them and it's kind of eerie. It's almost like the start of uh 28 days later. Yeah. I was going to say, is it just one of those situations where the locals just avoid going down to the mall unless they actually want to be there? You know, it, it, unless they want to be there. Um, admittedly, for the Trump administration, there weren't a lot of D.C. folks who were happy. To <laughs> wait, wait. That, what, didn't he have record numbers for his inauguration? No, he did not. Um, <laughs> I will say, because I, I did go to the Women's March and, you know, those numbers have never officially been out because, you know, the tomfoolery that happens. But there was at least over a million people in the city. Yeah. And I I have never seen it that crowded. It was crazy. You couldn't move. Just see a sea of people in the in the streets. Uh, does the heart good. If only our first interesting thing had some sort of presidential slant. To- oh, wait a minute. Oh, yeah. Thing one. Thing number one, there is one presidential dog with a statue in his honor. Which one is it, John? Franklin Delano Roosevelt had a dog named Fala, and Fala is the only president's pet that has been honored with a statue formally, and it's at his memorial that's right off of the um, tidal basin in, in the city, kind of near the uh, the cherry blossoms. So if you ever visit the city, you probably will have passed this. Right. I find Fala very interesting because also there's a very famous speech that kind of goes with this dog. When Roosevelt was campaigning in, I think it was 1944, he was attacked by Republican politicians at the time, and they said that he had left his dog on an island and that he had to spend millions of dollars to turn the boat he had been campaigning on around in order to rescue his dog. Right. And it was a rumor like they don't even know how the rumor got started. It was just it's funny how, you know, now we are in a time of misinformation and fake news. But here we are in 1944. And there was this Republican Harold Knutson from Minnesota who announced on the floor of the House of Representatives that he had heard that Fallah had been left behind in the Aleutian Islands as FDR had made his tour around there and that FDR had sent a destroyer back to pick up the dog. Now, 
Now, this was 100% false. Absolutely. And on top of that, like, you know, this is the era of fake news. This is where the term yellow germ- journalism comes from, because the papers that were going out then, they had like yellow pages. Randolph Hearst was operating. He was at his height of power at this time. And and certainly kind of the the style of journalism we see today that is not honest kind of all originates with that man. So Fala has been supposedly left behind and supposedly picked up by this destroyer. Of course, this didn't happen. The next day, uh, the House Majority Leader John McCormick said that it wasn't true. It went on even more that the Republicans then said, oh, well, they sent a plane to pick him up and they said that's not true. And this all led to a, a relatively famous speech, which was the first campaign speech that FDR gave uh, it was in front of the Teamsters, so it was in front of a very friendly audience on September 23rd, and it's become known as the Fallis speech. At this thing, he was speaking to a, also a radio audience of millions, and and he didn't pull any punches. He said, uh, he said that these Republican leaders, do I have the right, do I have the right president? These Republican leaders, have no, no, am I wrong? Okay, hold on. Um, the these Republican leaders, no, that's not right. You know what? I think I think you need you need the cup. You, you gotta. These Republican leaders have not been content with the attacks on me, on my wife, on my son. I've got a better idea. Why don't we actually let FDR do it? These Republican leaders have not been content with attacks on me, or on my wife, or on my sons. No, not content with that. They now include my little dog, Fallon. <laughs> well, of course, I don't resent attacks. And my family don't resent attacks. But Fallon does resent attacks. This went over very, very well. And it's almost like, I don't want to say this was the first time that people discovered the power of a politician being funny, but at the same time, it's almost like it really was that FDR said, oh, I'm funny. People are laughing. People heard it on the radio and it scored big political points. Absolutely. Fala. Now, do you wait? Do you say Fala or Fala? I guess I should listen to Roosevelt in that clip and figure out what it is. But you say Fala? I say Fala. Fowler was given actually as a Christmas present to FDR by his cousin, Margaret Suckley. Uh, Fowler's original name was Big Boy, which is kind of funny considering the fact that he's a little Scotty who was about, you know, one inch long. Uh, his original name, Roosevelt renamed him Murray the Outlaw of Fowler Hill after John Murray of Fowler Hill, who was a, a famous Scottish ancestor of FDR's. But of course, that's going to be a bit of a mouthful. You don't want to be when you're calling him for dinner. Hey, Murray, the outlaw of Fowler Hill, come for dinner. So that was just shortened down to Fowler. And he became really a celebrity. He was very well known amongst the press. As you said, this is definitely a time where people's distance to one another, especially like celebrities, was becoming shorter and shorter and people were realizing the power of the press. And everybody likes dogs. To help the war effort, Fala was an honorary private in the military. That's right. Yeah, he was an honorary private in the U.S. Army, and, and they made him that because he they made him contribute one dollar to the war effort for every day of the year, and that was supposed to set an example for others at home. I'm sure Fala came up with that decision all on his own; it had nothing to do with anybody else, and he he happened to have a couple bucks sitting in his back pocket. 
Also, there's that interesting detail where American soldiers would ask each other what is the name of the president's dog yeah. in order to ensure that people coming across lines were, uh, in fact, American. He was he was that well known. Although I do find it hard to believe that there weren't some very smart Germans who would know. You know, probably I'm sure some some Americans and, and Brits knew the name of Hitler's dog if Hitler had a dog. Did Hitler have a dog? Oh. Uh, he probably did. He was a vegetarian. He loved animals. But I will give you five dollars if you can name me a dog from another world leader right now it will venmo you uh okay hold on i'm you're doing this right now a dog from another world leader i will say uh joe biden has a dog called major that broke his leg ah huh? i said well damn i meant another world leader <laughs> like the president is, you know the president of ireland has two giant bernie's mountain dogs i know that i don't know their names and uh angela merkel has a dog named schadenfreude Damn it, I owe you five bucks. <laughs> well, you don't, because I just totally made that up. Uh, uh, well. <laughs> but presidential dogs, there's a long history with presidential pets and presidential dogs. Fala is one of the, the best known ones. But, you know, Nixon famously had his dog Checkers, who he had a famous speech about as well. He had to defend. It, it's funny because the Fala speech was FDR defending himself against charges of impropriety and corruption. And Nixon's checkers speech was pretty much the same thing. He was accused of having a slush fund to to pay for his political activities. And he gave this speech where he said, the only present I've received from anybody that I'm not going to give back is my adorable little dog checkers. And tons of people listened to it and it garnered tremendous support and sympathy for him. Not for long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Funny. What what did he do with that support and sympathy? But it's true. People have also gotten in trouble too. LBJ got into trouble. He was photographed picking up. He had beagles and he picked them up by the ears. He was photographed picking up his beagles by oh. the ears. And a lot of people were very annoyed by that. One of the people who was not annoyed by that was actually Harry S. Truman, who said, that's how you're supposed to pick up hounds. There's nothing wrong with that. That's That's how you do it. Harry S. Truman himself did not want to have a pet. He was he got into trouble because a supporter sent him an adorable cocker spaniel puppy named Feller, which he proceeded to give away because he did not want pets. And he was swamped with hate mail from dog lovers. They just did not. They were like, what are you doing? Someone gave you an adorable puppy and you gave it away. And Truman was like, yeah, I got to go nuke people. Sorry. I thought Theodore Roosevelt had the most pets. Might actually be Calvin Coolidge, a president at. I just don't want to read about. Oh, there. Oh, listen, there are so many, right? John Adams had a horse named Cleopatra. Jimmy Carter had a number of dogs. And actually, Jimmy Carter has the, the dubious distinction of owning the pet that had the strangest name. He had a Siamese cat who was apparently actually Amy's Siamese cat who was named Misty Malarkey Yin Yang. That is a name. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, uh, the uh, your outgoing president, Mr. Trump, is the first American president in more than a century not to have a pet in the White House. I think that speaks to his character. Well, unless you count Steve Bannon. Actually, fun bit of presidential facts. Uh, so I have worked the White House three times in my career as a f freelance filmmaker, and I have met Bo. Oh, really? One of Obama's dogs. Obama, that's the hyperallergenic Portuguese water dog, right? Yes, it is. Uh, I Years ago, back at the beginning of my career, when I was working on something called the Worldwide Day of Play, which is where Nickelodeon, a bunch of other channels, like, shut off for, like, five hours, and they did this stream of, like, go outside and exercise, and <laughs> we were shooting at the White House. You also, you can think back to, you know, Clinton had his cat socks. Yep. And it's funny how... The press does seem to fawn all over themselves as some of these pets because they know it's going to be easy, easy press, right? They know if you put a cat, you put a dog on, it's it's simpler than saying something which is going to get you in trouble with our 
completely stratified news world now, right? If you put a picture of a cute cat on. Like now with Biden coming in, everyone's talking about the fact that these are going to be the first rescue dogs who are going to be living in the White House, which is great. It's a great story, right? He has two dogs, Major and Champ. Major's going to be the first rescue dog from a shelter to live in the White House. And people are going with that because it's easier to talk about that than it is to talk about the whole stolen election, blah, blah, blah nonsense, right? Plus, who doesn't like dogs? <laughs> well, that's that's true, too. Well, I mean, we're, we're actually selling Fala short because you, this whole fact started with the fact that there is only one presidential dog with a statue in his honor. That's Fala. There's no other presidential dog that has a statue in his honor. Fala actually has three. Fala also has a statue in his honor at Puerto Rico's Paseo de los Presidentes. And also there's a third statue in the FDR Presidential Library and Museum in Hyde Park, New York. One of my favorite details of the statue is you can tell where guests, at least in the one in D.C., you can see where people have been petting Fala's head all of these years. Because <laughs> it's all polished down? It's a little bit polished. It's not incredibly so, but you can always tell. What's it? Do we know what the statue is made of? I don't even know. Is it, it is probably copper or oh, some okay. form of that. A lot of uh, statues in D.C. are made with some form of it. I'm surprised he's not green now with oxidation. Oh, he's totally green. Oh. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> little green dog. It looks kind of weird. <laughs> Martian green phala dog. Thing two. And for thing number two, we throw it to John. Uh, this is one of my favorite facts about one of my favorite filmmakers, Orson Welles. He had a very fantastic life. And one of my favorite facts about him is that he met three world leaders and knew two of them pretty well. They are FDR, Winston Churchill, and the third was Hitler. I mean, the FDR thing, I kind of knew because he and FDR were actually relatively good friends. Orson Welles campaigned for FDR. We'll talk about that in a sec. But the Churchill one, I can also get because we know that Churchill did come stateside during the war to meet up with FDR. And they probably met at that point. The Hitler thing is the one, obviously, that stands out. How did this even happen? He's just an adventurer throughout his entire life. And, you know, he was orphaned at a young age and kind of decided to be a man of the world. And at times he was trying to be a painter. And obviously people know him as an actor. And on one of his trips through um, Europe, he was on a hiking trip. And his instructor at the time was a budding Nazi and <laughs> took him to a dinner party to meet and rub elbows with, you know, these these famous figures at the time. And apparently the person sitting to I'm just going to say is right. Uh, the person sitting to his right, who who Orson Welles said was the most unremarkable man he had ever met in his life. <laughs> was Chancellor Adolf Hitler. And it was only later when after the war had happened or during it that somebody pointed out, I was like, hey, you met him. And he was like, I'm who? That was him? So no, wait, now, like, when did this meeting take place? Do we know? He talked about this on Dick Cabot. Uh, I don't have the specific date. Because I wonder if it was like it was before he became chancellor or maybe after 33 when he became chancellor, but before 39 when the war started, like it could have been there because like in there was that sort of six year span where Americans were still going to and from. I believe it was beforehand because I, I feel like even if you didn't remember the person, you would remember meeting the chancellor of Germany. And it's funny, you know, we, we look at that now when we sort of say, hey, Orson Welles met Hitler and that's because we are looking at that from a lens of people who know how that story played out, right? If, if he's meeting him at the time, let's say it's 1930, he's meeting him at the time, he's just meeting this guy from a budding new political party that he might not have any interest in, but at the same time, uh, would like to chat about as somebody who's an adventurer. And so, so he doesn't necessarily know 
that Hitler is going to become the person that we now know him to be. So we have to remember to look at it through that lens. Of course. And it's just weird because Orson Welles kind of seems to run into famous people throughout his entire life. Later, FDR was campaigning and he being one of the sort of biggest radio stars at the time, he was not only managing the Mercury Theater, then he was also running the Mercury Mercury Theater Radio Hour. That's where the very famous War of the Worlds broadcast was produced. And he, you know, became close with uh, Roosevelt and they became friends. And actually to tie it to our last segment, the idea behind the fall of speech was actually Orson Welles. Yeah. He was one of FDR's ghostwriters. Now, do we know if he actually wrote the speech or let, what, what I saw when I was doing a bit of research on this was that the idea to turn Fala into a bit, like a, a comedic bit, was Orson Welles. But do we know if he wrote the text of the speech? The one thing we do know is that FDR called him afterwards and asked Orson Welles how he did, which is just, uh, I think, is such a cool little detail. Well, the fact is, after that, I mean, the, the U.S. Treasury Department actually had Orson Welles on their payroll as of May 15th in uh, 1944, which was before the speech. But he they, they convinced Welles to help encourage Americans to donate to war funds, which he did. He earned the government over $60 million in bonds, which helped the Battle of Normandy. So Wells actually contributed to the war effort in in significant ways. Also, at a certain point, he was the goodwill ambassador to South America. Right. And that actually almost nearly destroyed his career because Wells was incredibly progressive at the time that he was alive. And that progressive streak in him wasn't taken very well by RKO. Well, he and the studio systems never really got along. <laughs> he never got along. And there's so many different reasons for that. RKO was looking for a reason to fire him. And, you know, if you look at Orson Welles' career, when he was running the Mercury Theater, one of the things, and he credited this as like one of his best projects he ever did, is he put on a production of, I believe it was Hamlet, with an all-black cast. It was Macbeth. He did Macbeth it was Macbeth. It was Macbeth. Yeah. And it was this huge hit, and you know nobody had thought to do that. He, he just wanted to give black actors who hadn't had an opportunity to really work outside of roles that were they were only relegated to, just to see it. And it was a huge hit at the time. And later, when he was working for RKO, working with the American government on their goodwill campaign, he was charged with filming Carnival. So he filmed it. And, you know, the film that they got back, which didn't really have much of a story because it didn't really send him down with like that much. Uh, there was a lot of people who were black and white celebrating at this festival. So the American government at the time was like, we cannot release this. And <laughs> he was fired from RKO and he had to work as an actor for a while after that point. You say he met a lot of interesting people, which he did. I mean, he really was a fascinating character. He's uh, someone who, aside from his obvious contributions to film and radio, was just such a larger-than-life character. And as someone who's a Wells enthusiast as you are, I want you to confirm whether or not there's a story that I've heard about him that is true, which is that he actually met H.G. Wells. Do you know this story? I don't know this one. Okay, so the idea is that right after War of the Worlds, which is, of course, H.G. Wells, H.G. Wells was still alive at the time, and Wells and Wells actually met that H.G. Wells, the writer, was traveling through San Antonio, Texas, and he had to stop and ask for directions. Now, this story is almost too good to be true, so it has to be apocryphal, and that the person he asked was, in fact, none other than Orson Welles. They got along well. They spent the rest of the day hanging out. 
And the the radio broadcast had just happened recently before that, so they might have been talking about that. But that is one story I've heard that H.G. Wells and Orson Wells met when H.G. asked Orson for directions. This seems too good to be true. I just, I you know, with how crazy that guy's life was, I can't say it's not. <laughs> it's just, again, the guy met Hitler before Hitler was Hitler, and he was friends with FDR. And then again... He had later he had met Churchill during the war effort and then later on in his career met Churchill again in Italy and his association with Churchill helped him get financing for a movie. And we also haven't even talked about the fact that he was a very accomplished magician. That was how he started early on in his career. He did magic. And you said he did art. This is also another crazy thing that he had uh, a six episode run on the BBC of a Bob Ross type series where he was drawing called uh oh, what was it called i believe it's uh orson welles sketchbook i've, I've there we go. orson welles sketchbook you know have you seen it i have it's i mean the guy was such a amazing rack on tour and it's great and he basically does these quick gesture drawings and it's just you know just he, he's sketching things from his life and then he would just talk and they would kind of, you know, he would talk to the camera about these things that he had experienced or thoughts that he'd had so or- Orson Welles' first movie was uh, Citizen Kane. And yeah, I, you know, the funny thing is, I know a lot about Citizen Kane. I have a Citizen Kane poster in my front hall, a Polish original Citizen Kane poster, which is glorious. I Oof. did not know that it was his first film. I should have known that. It's it's impossible to believe when you consider what it is. If you want to ever feel bad about your life accomplishments, know that he directed it at 25. Jeez. Oh, he was 25 years old. He had already been directing Shakespeare plays at age 22 on Broadway yeah. at that point. Now, do you know the two iconic roles in the 1970s that Orson Welles was considered for but did not end up doing? Oh, my God. I want to hear this. <laughs> one of them was Don Corleone. Wow. And the funny thing about that one was that he wanted Don Corleone. But Coppola was dead set on having Brando, but he really, really wanted Don Corleone. And then the uh, the other role, which I think is hilarious, was that he was originally thought of for the role of Darth Vader. Oh, my God. Yeah. George Lucas had him pegged as his number one choice because he knew, you know, Wells had that sort of gravitas. But ultimately, what happened was they decided that his voice would be too familiar for audiences. So instead, and I didn't know this, Orson Welles narrated the trailers for Star Wars. Oh, man. Well, I know what I'm looking up after. I, I know we got to see these. Oh, man, I hope that's true. I think that's true. It's funny, you say that he was always chasing money. I was surprised to see how his money did not hold up. You thought somebody who would have had such a, a wide and varied career, and he was, you know, a legendary 20th century figure. He's one of the few people who has two stars on the Walk of Fame. He has one for radio and one for film. But I was surprised to see in the 1970s, he was actually in a lot of financial trouble. When he was making The Other Side of the Wind, which is a film that was just recently finished and released on Netflix last year, he could not afford to pay his cinematographer, Cary Grader, so he actually gave him his Citizen Kane Oscar. That's how he paid him. You know, I'm not surprised by that at all. And the reason why there's another great story about Orson Welles with uh, Mel Brooks. So uh, Orson Welles did the narration on um, History of the World and Mel Brooks had booked him for five days at $5,000 a day because he thought it was going to take that long. He thought Wells was going to be this like, you know, kind of big drama queen, which admittedly Wells was like the world's biggest drama queen. Come on. He's just, well, anyone who's heard the frozen peas commercial outtakes knows what that's yeah. all about. That the granddaddy of all commercial outtakes. Oh my god. Outtakes. What? Could I have just one more take of that? Story? Why? I just did it right. Yeah. I, look, I, I'm not used to having more than one person in there. One more word out of you and you go. Is that clear? Yes, sir. 
I take where I take directions from one person under protest, but from two I don't sit still. But who the hell are you anyway? No, I'm the engineer. Well, why the hell are you asking me for another one? Well, I thought there was a slight bunk, and I would like just like to be safe. Jesus. And so, you know, of course, Wells was an expert, you know, at radio. So he knocked it out in a single day. And, you know, Mel Brooks was kind of like really beat up about this because he just pissed away all his money on, on this one <laughs> role. And he's, you know, he finally asked, he's like, or, you know, Orson, what are you going to do with the money? And, and apparently, you know, Wells was big at this time he's like well cigar cigars and caviar you know normally i might be a woman but i've i've gotten a little bit big for that <laughs> thing three thing number three do we need a single international language in space it's an interesting question that most of us probably do not think about, but most of us know that the I on International Space Station does stand for international and that there are a number of people involved in that. What most people don't know is that every single astronaut who goes up to the ISS has to learn Russian. Yeah, I was quite surprised by that. I don't know why. So what happened was the the, the main way that you used to get up to the space station, the, the bus that used to take you there when you hopped on the 245 up to the space station was the space shuttle. And of course, the space shuttle stopped operating in 2011. And so now there's only one way to get up to the space station, which is on Soyuz rockets. That's the only way to get there. And they take off from this special parcel of Russian territory in Kazakhstan. And that means that if you are an astronaut, it doesn't matter where you are from, you have to learn how to operate these Soyuz rockets and all of their modules and operations are in Russian. And they're a good portion of the things that are written inside the spacecraft are written in Russian, which means if you are going to the space station as an astronaut in 2020, or even for the last, you know, almost decade, you have had to learn Russian before you go. It, it only makes sense. I'm just, but again, I'm so surprised by it because isn't the international language of air control English? That's correct. And that's one of the reasons why people are talking about this now, because we do have an international language of air control, which some people don't know. Some people don't know that there is, if you become a pilot, it doesn't matter where you were flying from. Let's say you were flying a plane from, you know, somewhere in Ethiopia to somewhere else in Ethiopia, you're still going to be speaking English to everybody in ground control. Now we know that English has become a de facto default language for a few things around the world. You know, if you travel, like my wife and I went to um, America, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's the, it's the default language. We went to South Carolina, and I could not believe how many people spoke English. No, but um, my wife and I went to Budapest, and Budapest is interesting because Hungarian is a language that is not related to any other European language except. Finnish. It's not one of these sort of Slavic languages. It's not a romance language. And consequently, virtually everybody in Budapest speaks English. It's an incredible when you go to so many of these places that everyone just speaks English. Well, and, and certainly thinking of like why Ru it, at least Russia hasn't adapted this, it's kind of a clever thing on their side to keep everything in Russian to exert some sort of cultural control. Absolutely. I mean, it's definitely self-serving, but now there's a, a growing conversation about the fact that we should think about establishing a single unified language for 
space. Because as you and I are recording this right now, there are a, num a number of astronauts on the International Space Station, and they speak a variety of languages. Apparently, there's this kind of hybrid version of Russian and English that has taken form in the space station, which is kind of fun, like, you know, Rushklish, Englishian, that they all sort of speak to each other. And of course, it's not just Russians and Americans up there. You also have uh, Austrians up there. You have, you know, Brits up there. You have Canadians up there. You have all kinds of different people. But many of the astronauts who have gone up there have said that one of the most difficult parts of their training was learning Russian. Oh, no doubt. I mean, also just learning any language is difficult, you know, on top of learning how to work rocket ships. Right, right. Well, I mean, the U.S. State Department, Foreign Service, they have a scale for English speakers to understand the difficulty of learning any other language. And they rank Russian as uh, among several category two languages, hmm. which also includes Greek, Icelandic and Croatian, which they say has, quote, significant linguistic and or cultural differences from English. And the easiest way to look at this is that to reach a reasonable level of fluency in Russian, students can expect to spend about 1,100 class hours, mm. which compares to French and Spanish, where they say uh, it would be about 575 to 600. So it's almost twice the amount of time it would take you to learn any of those other languages. Have they talked about trying to use Esperanto? <laughs> it's funny. It's funny that you say that because that's the big question now, right? Is if we're going to come up with a, a language, should it be one of the ones that's already up there, like English or Russian? Because if you think about it, the Russians, of course, also have to learn English because much of their operational stuff is going to be done through NASA, which is all going to be English. So some people say, let's use one of the other languages out there. But the dark horse in all of this is, here it comes, Chinese, because oh, yeah. China is now launching a huge space program. We are in the midst of it right now. And the next thing on the horizon for all of us is a trip to Mars. And if a trip to Mars is going to occur, it's going to require a huge amount of international cooperation. And you'd better believe that China is going to be in that mix. I have no doubt China would try and make it Chinese. Well, because the other thing is that there's there's talk now that funding for the ISS is going to be running out in 2024 and that it might cease operations and that China is going to be, I mean, China's already putting together their version of a space station. They're, they have a planned CSS, the China Space Station. And if you think about that, that's going to be part of a trip to Mars. There's going to be all kinds of stuff that's part of a trip to Mars. And so the conversation is happening right now. And it also deals with, there's apparently a field of something called space law. Which, can you imagine if you were a space lawyer? It's the coolest damn sounding job in the world. But there is law that governs international space stuff. I have kind of a connection to this because my grandfather was one of the Grumman guys. Really? Yeah. Ex explain to the audience that. Because so if you don't, if, if you've ever seen the movie Apollo 13, uh, there's a point where they're trying to get uh, round peg, square hole, or the other yeah. way around. And they wind up calling in uh, Northrop Grumman engineers to help them solve this problem. And my grandfather is one of the people who's in that image because he also worked on the lunar lander now from what i recall of apollo 13 that was because they were trying to that was cleaning the air right that was it that was, was filtering the carbon dioxide out of the air yeah it was an air filter that right right wasn't designed for the amount of time that they were in space right now, as I was researching this, one of the interesting things that I found was that there was an article in Slate magazine that talked about how language will change if humans actually do travel into the stars. And the theory behind this is if you think about, let's say it's, you know, 
300 years from now and we are sending people on 200 year journeys, 300 year journeys into the into the stars. The problem is that language changes at such a high rate that when these transmissions are received back from people here at, you know, Cape Canaveral or wherever it might be, we might not understand what they're saying because language has changed so much. If you think about language in 1800 up until right now, there's been, I mean, even language from 1990 up until right now, there's been so much change. And if you have all of these generations living on spaceships as they go out, I mean, it's getting very speculative at this point, but it's quite fascinating to think that now you're going to have to teach your children as they are born and raised on these spaceships, a universal language like Latin or something like that in order to be able to communicate with the people back at home. But, you know, there's an interesting thing. So my wife is an English teacher. And one of the things she's talked to, we were just talking about this last night about how the written written English has changed, but you can still read something from 100, 200 years ago and, and pretty much understand it. But when you, as you said, if you listen to kind of like contemporary English speech and a lot of slang, as opposed to the way somebody spoke, you know, back in the day and sort of very formal English, I can certainly undersee, I can certainly see how it'd be hard to understand each other. But at that point, hopefully we're going to have quantum communication. There's not going to be a lag. Well, that's the problem, right? I mean, if you are going, let's say even you're going to Mars, if you send your transmission back home, that's taking 20 minutes before it gets back. I think it's about 20 minutes, right? Yeah. Before it gets back here. And that is the, the problem with communicating between spaceships and and back in here regardless of language um is it by the way this child is this your first child first yep your first child so i have two i live with two teenage girls i know i look that's why i look so damned old <laughs> and one of the things that i can tell you is when you're thinking about language when you live with two teenagers it is fascinating to see the rapidity with which language changes now especially in our age of tiktok and twitter and various other social media that the the phases that come in and out of language and linguistics are so astronomically fast that one of the things I'll frequently do is I'll think to myself, okay, if my dad was still alive today, my dad who died about 30 years ago, if he was still alive today, how much of what my daughters say on a daily basis would he understand? And I think it would probably be about 40%. You know, you and I, if my daughter said to you, oh, that really slaps, you would know that they're saying it's a pretty good thing. But you know, someone from five, even even if you think about things that we now take for granted, like using the word bad as good or using the word fat as good, which are now, of course, gone. Like these things come and go so quickly that we forget how much language changes in a short period of time. I wouldn't be surprised if they don't think about that in terms of long term communication. Like some. Well, that's a, like they can think about it, but how can they predict it? Right. How can you predict where language is going to go? It's so fluid. It is. But I think that there's there are things that you could have as constants like i don't know if you know a a casual conversation might survive but at certainly really you know the things that are going to matter is like do you have enough food is everybody surviving is there sickness aboard is the ship still in one piece are you you know are you going to get there the uh the article about uh, language and travel i'm going to send that out on the twitter feed for the listener if you want to actually read that article from slate magazine i'm going to send that out on our twitter feed which is at three interesting that's the number three interesting i'm only saying that because i don't say the socials on this show as much as i probably should you gotta get get more people there uh so if you want to read any of the articles that we've talked about on today's show i'm going to send that out on three interesting or our instagram account at three the number three interesting things
And we have some breaking news. As mentioned at the top of the show, when John and I recorded, he and his wife were expecting a baby. Well, it turns out 2020 wasn't exactly an entirely horrible year, as the year ended with the arrival of Milo. Mother and child and John and dog are all doing great. And that is it for today's episode. John, thank you so, so much for coming on today. That was great. Do you have any socials you want to throw our way? I do. I... I'm going to plug my show, which is SPR, Superhuman Public Radio. Yeah, tell us about what that is. So it's it's NPR meets the Marvel Universe. It's it's what the news might sound like if you live in a world full of superheroes. So when you join, the leading news story of the time is our Superman stand-in, Cosmos, has been arrested by ICE because he is an illegal alien. And then later on our kind of This American Life program that's called These American Supers, it's a a reporter is embedded with uh, henchmen who are being hired through an Uber-like app that is starting to impact the minion industry. So, And how often does this come out? It it comes out once a week. We got a first season of 12 episodes. We're on episode three as of the 1st of December. And uh, this is only season one, but everything that we kind of put out in the world is in universe so that if you ever want to get away from how crazy the world is today, you can check us out online. And and what should people be looking for? Where, where can they find you? They can find us on... Twitter on pretty much everything social at SPR pod. And then our main website is superhumanpublicradio.com. Awesome. Thanks for being on the show. John. Thank you for having me. Hey, what's the most interesting thing you've seen on the internet this week? Fact, article, something else. We want it. Email us at three interesting things at gmail.com. Follow our Instagram at three, that's the number three interesting things, or tweet it to us at three interesting. You'll get a shout out on the show. Hey, if you're enjoying the podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating or review. It really helps people find the show. We'll see you next week.